0: Good morning, everybody. I'm always sorry to interrupt your pleasure and insist that you turn your attention to the podium, but we do like to start things on time, so we're gonna get started. And uh, my name is David Bowes. I'm the executive vice president of the Cato Institute and the longest standing employee of Cato. Um, So I wanna welcome all of you here. Um, it is so nice to be back in Chicago, especially it's so nice to be anywhere except at my home in my study. Um, I've actually been back in my office for about three months, but a lot of people in Washington are not back in their offices, so a lot of stuff is still closed down. Um, I saw somebody last night who said, isn't it outrageous we're paying all these federal employees and they're not working? And I said, well, the good news is I don't really want them to work. Um, The bad news is they have computers and they are still working and they can still churn out regulations. So it doesn't really do any good. It just means that all my favorite sandwich shops are not open because there aren't many people to go to them with federal government closed down. But we're glad to be back in Chicago, seeing old friends, seeing some new friends, uh, especially those of you who have been Cato sponsors for a long time. um, And those of you who are new Cato sponsors. And if you're not yet a Cato sponsor. We have ways to remedy that. We have forms out there that will allow you to make a contribution and start getting uh, our materials in the mail, and also know that you are supporting the last best hope of mankind. Um, Those of you who have been to Chicago events, before know that this is a smaller turnout than we used to have. It's pretty good considering how many people are still worried about going to big crowded indoor events. One of the things that we discovered recently at Cato was for about 15 months we couldn't do any in-person events but we wanted to continue talking about ideas, doing policy forums and book forums so our conference staff quickly learned how to do zoom and vimeo and other kinds of online events and then what we discovered was that we were getting lots more people to attend than we ever did when we were doing them in the hayek auditorium because in the first place people from all over the country could attend by tuning in virtually and in the second place i think even people who were in washington discovered it was a lot easier to stay at their desk and maybe eat lunch at their desk for our noon forums and watch the forum from the comfort of their homes. And now we think nobody's ever going to show up for an in-person event in Washington anymore because they have found out that they can watch a Cato book forum in their pajamas, so why bother getting dressed and coming downtown? We have certainly been busy throughout the pandemic. There were lots of challenges to liberty and limited government, and also lots of challenges to running an office, running an operation uh, that way. But that kept us busy. And we have been, I think, pushing back on bad policy ideas, pushing back on spending plans, protectionism, new forms of government surveillance, all those kinds of things. Advancing real reforms, criminal justice reform, Jones Act repeal, uh, spending reforms. I I keep suggesting on Twitter, which I'm told policymakers read a lot, even though normal people don't. um, I keep suggesting on Twitter, hey, Democrats, if you want to get the Republicans to vote for the debt ceiling, uh, to, to raise the debt ceiling... How about making a trade? We'll drop the $3.5 trillion new spending if you vote for the debt ceiling increase. But Democrats uh, don't seem to have been willing to offer that deal yet. Um, And then, of course, we've also been defending fundamental ideas that underlie all of these policy matters, the ideas of liberty, individual rights, the open society, free speech, Understanding economics. Sometimes I think the point is not simply to advocate for free market policies, but simply to try to spread understanding of economics. So many people just don't get that economics involves incentives and trade-offs and costs and benefits. And the more people who learn what those terms mean, supply and demand, the better public policy would be, I think, which is why a couple of years ago, We created a new position at Cato, um, created by one of our sponsors, the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics. So what I said when I was describing this was not necessarily to make new theoretical uh, advances in economics, not necessarily even to do a policy study, although in fact the holder of the chair does do that, but His goal is to increase public understanding of economics, Um, and that means writing newspaper op-eds, going on television, doing YouTube videos and things just to help people understand the way an economist would look at the minimum wage law, the tariff, uh, whatever issues are being discussed. Some of you who are real intellectuals or real nerds may recognize I actually stole this title from the title of Richard Dawkins at Oxford University, whose title was the Simoni Chair for the Public Understanding of Science. So again, he was a trained scientist, but late in his career, he wanted to talk about science to people, not just his students, not just his grad students. So he had this chair in the Public Understanding of Science, and I think it's at least as important To have a chair in the public understanding of economics. So that's some of the things we've been up to lately. Um, Today, you're going to hear from a couple of other uh, policy scholars at Cato, Um, and after that, we will break for wine, and then I believe we move away from these tables so they can set salads and wine glasses on them, and then we'll come back to these tables uh, and have lunch, and after lunch, I will talk about uh, why we need our movement for freedom. Um, right now, I'm going to invite two colleagues up here. Sally James is going to be our MC for the morning. Sally, you will notice in a few minutes, is not a native-born American, but she was born on the 4th of July, and she always knew she was destined to be an American. And she came to Cato first as a Ph.D. economist studying trade policy, and then, She stopped doing that and started working in our development department where her charm and personality count for at least as much as uh, her economic training, and also it was deemed that she simply had too much charm and personality to be a policy scholar. Um, And right now she's going to uh, uh, engage Mark Calabria in conversation. Mark um, had a medium-sized career, in public policy in Washington. He worked for the Senate Banking Committee and so on, and then he came to Cato a few years ago, and then he left Cato to work in the government, but fortunately he didn't get locked in there forever, partly thanks to the Supreme Court's liberation, which he may talk about a little bit. Um, The main thing I think that he did in government was to try to forestall a Another Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac collapse, but it turned out Washington doesn't actually like to anticipate and forestall problems. They prefer to wait until the emergency happens because then they can pass emergency legislation that costs trillions of dollars. So that's the problem that we have been dealing with in all these recent emergencies. All right, I'm going to get on the podium. I get off the podium now and invite Sally James and Mark Calabria up.
1: introduction <laughs> yeah. that was great you,
2: you never stopped being a phd economist no, however
1: I, so I, that, that I part stays not. with you sorry
0: is, uh, your, is yours on it should,
1: is it on now yes okay sorry um yes still a phd economist never leaves me
2: like I, maybe i'll just say you know both my parents were accountants so if any accountants in the room you won't take offense at it for me to decide at some point i started out undergrad so the, accounting major but it really just determined i didn't have the personality
1: exactly. you know to
2: be an accountant so therefore i had to switch to economics but
1: that yes exactly um, <laughs> for all of us uh, we're very pleased to welcome back to uh, cato mark calabria as david said uh, mark had joined our, uh, joined cato initially as our uh, director of financial regulation co-founded our center for monetary and financial alternatives uh, establishing the institute as uh, a leading voice in financial and monetary reform issues in Washington. Before that, he was a senior aide to the Senate Banking Committee where he helped to draft major legislation in the wake of the financial crisis and Hurricane Katrina. Uh, His expertise and reputation uh, was established such that he was drafted to join Vice President Mike Pence's office as chief economist, and from there he led the Federal Housing Um, finance agency which regulates and supervises uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac and the Federal Home Loan Banks. He joined the agency in April 2019 and therefore led the agency's response to uh, COVID which we're going to get to in a moment. Uh, Mark's new role as senior advisor to the Cato Institute is to provide strategic uh, input on the federal policy making process uh, with a particular emphasis on economic policy. Mark, before we get to your new role, I want to start with um, questions. I have questions (laughs) about working in the White House. Um, How did the process work for formulating economic policy? Was it easy to get a limited government perspective heard? I mean, the campaign platform of the Trump administration was a little more interventionist, I think, than some of us would have expected of a Republican, of what we wanted, but I'd love to hear how easy it was to make the kind of libertarian case.
2: Sure, sure. Maybe what I'll do first is answer the question, yes, and then answer and then talk about why that necessarily didn't win the day uh, on a regular basis. Uh, normally within any White House, modern White House, you have the National Economic Council that runs the economic policy process. Uh, I represented the vice president whenever we had NAC meetings. Uh, I never felt like I was unable to raise uh, free market perspectives and it was usually helpful that there were a few other people. I, since we're in Chicago, you know, maybe I will mention, we were very lucky to have Casey Mulligan over at the council of economic advisors, as well as T- Tomas Phillipson, who was the acting chair. You know, both of these guys were at the table pushing usually for free market oriented policies uh, and OMB usually when Mick Mulvaney was at the table was pushing for free market policies, obviously didn't win as much as we would have liked to, Uh, I never felt like we couldn't represent the policies. I I will say one of the things that was perhaps surprising to me going in that I think really needs to be given more thought about next time around. um, Most of the policies were, I don't think we advanced as much as I would have liked to have seen uh, on free market were really stuff where there was some sort of national security defense aspect. So while NEC might've run the process, you had the National Security Council, NSC, at the table as well. And one of the things that I really did not recognize who went over to the White House is about 90% or so where the staff of the NSC are not politicals. They are people who are detailed over from the agencies. They will go back to the agencies. So you can imagine you're at the table with some guy who's over from the CIA. He's here working for you. He's gonna go back to the CIA when he's done, or DOD. And you really saw this constant push against liberalization policies And there really wasn't, in in my opinion, this kind of mindset, if you think about it as a chess or war where it's like, oh, they've got a platoon uh, on the field. We've got to put a platoon on the field to match it. That was really their perspective. Um, I can say I regularly drove them crazy when I would say things like, you know, we really are not going to be able to out-china China. Why would we want to take that approach? That's the wrong approach. It's actually not going to work for them. And after the steam would stop coming out of their ears, they would sort of say, oh, but we've got to counter this and counter that. And, And I would say that, Given that so much of that infrastructure was career staff at the intelligence agencies and that there wasn't an infrastructure in there to kind of even bring a free market perspective, that was probably the hardest thing that I ran into on a regular basis. And and again, I think this is something where libertarians need to drill down, not just on the broader China issue, but on the foreign and national security aspects that are used to counter so often economic liberalization.
1: Right, and I want to kind of drill deeper in a little bit you said a lot of these people were kind of career uh, diplomats or bureaucrats or both Um, you know how easy is it I mean you led an agency during COVID as I said there must have been enormous pressure there was a lot of stress in the markets and in society more broadly there must have been enormous pressure to make decisions really quickly um, under pressure um, in real time and I think I, I think the audience would love to know how um, lessons you might have w- learned about how government actually works on the ground under pressure, um,
2: and how what, what you've learned from that. So certainly, when there's pressure, and a lot of the problem, of course, is that you have a number of people in decision-making positions who don't actually really have a deep understanding of the mm-hmm. issues there they're working on, maybe I'll, I'll use the example. Um, Secretary Mnuchin was going into treasury almost every day during COVID and I would go into the treasury building and meet with him pretty regularly. I remember walking out of a meeting with uh, Secretary Mnuchin and, and, and passing Doug Parker, CEO of American Airlines, <laughs> walking in. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, maybe it's a broader conversation of, boy, why does it every seem to 10 years the airlines seem to get a big uh, you know, uh, cut of assistance? And I use that to contrast with, there was a lot of pressure on me, and I'm gonna talk about this in my book a little bit that I'm writing, that you know the mortgage industry really came in and pressured for a rescue that I said no to, and to his credit, Secretary Mnuchin said no to. And I think part of the difference was that Mnuchin and I both had a pretty good understanding. We, had, we looked at the data, we went through it, we, we knew that it was really just an industry asking for a bailout who didn't need it. We had other alternatives, such as restructuring some of these. And I contrast that with um, I don't really know too many people in Washington who have the first clue how the airline industry works. Uh, And I do think that this is why it's important organizations like Cato where we have policy scholars who develop an expertise in particular areas. Because I do think that you get this panic among politicians of I don't know enough better otherwise. So let's throw money at it. Mm Um, And I think if you can present the arguments, uh, despite the fact that many of us, of course, have flown on bankrupt airlines and and we know how to actually resolve them without cost to the taxpayer, it's really something where I don't think there's as much expertise there. So uh, I think having to bring that counter to it. And it's also important to keep in mind, um, maybe you'll appreciate this. I have said a couple of times that, uh, you know, one of the biggest changes for me coming back to civilian life, if you will, uh, is I don't spend half of my day being lied to anymore. That's kind of refreshing, and I say that to to emphasize, ninety percent of what you hear, as a head of an agency, is self interested spin from, interest you know industry parties, advocacy parties, uh, and I guess what made me good at the job was I had the distinct ability to smile and nod at people who were completely just lying to me endlessly. Um, Ooh, it's hard; it's, it's a that takes some developing. Yeah. But all that said, my point being is that. Um, you know, it's an opportunity where truly public interested entities like Cato or our friends, I think things really should need to be part of the conversation. Because again, mo- the typical political appointee at any agency of the administration doesn't have a deep depth in the topic. And they mostly hear from interested parties. So 90% of what they hear, which they for judge to be true, because they're not hearing the counter. Mm-hmm. So again, to David's point about teaching that economics and thinking about that, there's just such a critical, important role for somebody out there to be saying what the counter-argument is. And I think we sometimes just assume that, oh, well, everybody knows the counter, they just dismiss it. Uh, I think that one of the things that was surprising to me in my time in government, there's a lot of the counter-argument of basic economics that just aren't known. They're never really presented the alternative. And I Hmm. I think we need to do more of that and can do more of that.
1: So let me choose a couple of policy examples then that might draw out some of the specific lessons. Um, I think even though it wasn't ideal, um, we saw some successes in uh, tax policy from the Trump administration, but not in healthcare reform. So what was the difference between, or what lessons can we learn from why one kind of uh, policy area we saw some improvement and one we did not? What lessons can we draw about the approach to those that might help us have more success in the future? Great question.
2: And I really did, you know, and, well, A, I'd certainly like to attribute my, I think 2013 testimony in front of the Ways and Means Committee on why we needed to- well, to, to, to limit the SALT deductions yes. and the mortgage interest deductions as being the real driver, but in all, <laughs> in all reality- Apart from that. But in all reality, right. I mean, and A, I'll say, I really do think it was a tremendous success in that um, there really aren't, a lot of things that you can do, in my opinion, have a bigger economic bang for the buck than lowering, if not, you know, again, my my view is the optimal corporate tax rate, zero. <laughs> so, the, And again, it's just a horribly inefficient way to raise money. But why did we get that done in 2017 where you couldn't get health care done? Mm-hmm. Uh, is because a lot of work had really been done ahead of time. Uh, and in the, for instance, in the tax reform space, the work of, of David Camp in the house, Kevin Brady, and of course, the, some of the Ryan plan. And of course, we got rid of some of the, you, you may remember the border adjustment tax things that Ryan had. We cleaned up that. But the core of what was passed in 2017 was really something that had been vetted repeatedly and passed out of the Ways and Means Committee and and therefore had built a coalition around. In, for instance, a lot of the problems you see, and, and I'm actually getting some enjoyment out of watching it, with Democrats and Reconciliation is they're just throwing things against the wall that have not even been vetted within their own caucus. And the reason we didn't get healthcare done, in my view, in 2017, was that while almost every Republican pretty much ran on repealing healthcare, and of course Cato did a tremendous amount of work on litigation strategy, there really was no alternative. I mean, yes, Republicans threw together some alternative in 2017 in healthcare, nobody had vetted it, nobody had really worked on it, and again, there was just a mantra of get rid of Obamacare, but there was no real, but what are you gonna Mm -hmm. have as a replacement? Uh, and we got tax reform done because there was a plan. And healthcare is one example where I, you know, I, I believe we should spend the next couple of years if there's an opportunity to replace Obamacare, having a replacement off the shelf that we have vetted, we've worked through, that's one area. Obviously a number of other areas I believe we can make continued change. And of course, I hope we get a chance to come back and try to cut taxes uh, again and, and, and simplify the tax code again. But the bottom line is that having that ahead of time you know, you you will not be able to use a short window of time to pass pol- complicated policies if you have not, you know, vetted them uh, and you haven't built a consensus around them, at least within your own, you know, among libertarians or among Republicans or Democrats. And let me emphasize, uh, again, we're not red team, we're not blue team. There are many, you know, we've made a lot of progress, uh, you know, on Qualified immunity. There's a lot being done on immigration. We certainly need to take the same track in terms of what are things that we think we can pass when Democrats are in power. What are things things we can pass when Republicans are in power? But how do we have all of those things off the shelf with some degree of vetting ahead of time?
1: Okay. And so, just to wrap up before we're going to turn it to questions, I'm sure you have questions as well. Um, Basically, um, what sorts of things? Your new role at Cato is really to educate. Um, or to help our scholars learn about some of the ideal kind of times and places to make to have an impact. Is that right?
2: A- absolutely. So you know, I kind of describe it as a combination of uh, advocacy boot camp slash executive coaching, where I'm going to be working one on one, mostly with the econ team, but hopefully across the the institute. In again, I see this as evolutionary. I mean, Cato has done an amazing job of you know putting libertarianism out there for the public, educating the public educating the press, and educating inf- other influencers, if you will, uh, and all of those things work slightly differently from each other. And so for me, the next kind of front of the fight for freedom, if you will, is how do we directly impact with policymakers? So when I have sat down with some of the Cato staff, one of the first questions or homework assignments. I give them, and this is just illustrative how, how the system works, is to say, on econ issues, there are perhaps four to eight Hill staffers on Congress who really, truly matter. These people are gatekeepers. What they do can get into a bill, and can change really public policy or they can stop it. Mm -hmm. And so how do we make sure that, you know, we're not just out there shooting in the dark or trying to hope that somebody reads the op-ed, but how do we make sure we get in front of the people that are gatekeepers? And so maybe I'll wrap it up with a, a little bit of a story. Uh, I often say that my favorite day on the job um, at the White House was the third day on the job. We were just wrapping up a meeting with the Vice President. He turns to me and says, uh, "Big fan, love your stuff. Read a bunch of it." Of course, my response was, "You and my mom." It's a small audience, but a high quality one. And you know, it's and about a week or so later, it really clicked in my mind. It's like, you know, he wasn't going to the, the Vice President Pence wasn't necessarily going to the Keta website. wasn't necessarily reading where I was publishing my stuff. His staff, when he was in the House running the sub- us, Republican Study Committee, were putting my op-eds and my blog posts in his book every night. They were putting it in front of them. Uh, and so there's a roundabout way of saying, how do we figure out who puts the book together? Any cabinet secretary, any, any, anybody right. of tremendous amount of influence often has somebody who's assembling information for them. So how do we make sure we figure out who those gatekeepers are so that we can try to make sure we get as much eyes on our stuff as possible?
1: Have we looked at, like, spouses asking the husbands or wives to, like, put
2: uh, you know, we paper often probably paper on their w- nightstand? W- w- That's w- where w- I w- leave w- stuff w-
1: for my husband, like bills and things. I just and, leave and, and, it on and, his and, side of the bed. Did th- th- they get taken care of that way? Ex- yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear about it. Okay, let's, let's uh, open it up for questions. I'm sure you have many. We have two roving microphones, so please raise your hand and wait for the microphone to come to you before asking your question.
0: Thank you. Wonderful uh, information you provided. Uh, Your last comment about the gatekeepers, would those be staffers that are attached to uh, whoever happens to be chairing the key committees, and what would those uh, committees be?
2: So th- th- that's, that's a great example. And again, it depends on, on the issue. For the economic issues, so if you really want to make an impact, and Scott, you know, he we, we and I talk about this, if you really want to make an impact on trade, trade is driven through the Finance Committee in the Senate and driven through the Ways and Means Committee in the House. So there's going to be a trade staffer on the Republican, lead trade staffer on the Republican side and the Democrat side of the Finance Committee how do you make sure they're reading your stuff? How do you make sure you get that in front of them? Uh, and of course, we've been working, Jeff Der Slicer runs our congressional, he and I have been working on some, some things to try to you know, better help you know, impact and, and leverage what the staff is doing and getting this in front of the right people. Uh, but certainly for the economic, the finance ways and means are, are, are critical, not just for trade, tax, and healthcare, uh, but for a whole host, host of issues. You know, Banking is certainly you know, very important for a number of issues, but, You know, Again, just identifying who are the right staffers, who do we get that in front of, how do you kind of build those relationships. Uh, And again, like one of the things that I know that frustrates, I I think, Cato scholars sometimes is we often get like a week's notice or something when, oh, we'd like someone to come testify. Oh, can you do that in a week? Uh, And most people dropping everything, trying to put a testimony together in a week is not easily done. I think I still hold probably the Cato record for most congressional testimonies, something at 30, 32 or something around that point. Um, I don't know if a single one of them came through our congressional affairs staff. They all came through ongoing relationships and conversations with the committees in question. So some of this is me helping the staff target what the relationships they need to have, help them build those relationships Uh, And again, it's a lot of things like I'm sure in, in many of your business, so much of it is word of mouth and relationships. And that's kind of one way how we've been incredibly successful, in my opinion, at Cato with the press, is that we build relationships with reporters. We build relationships with editors. And so it's really kind of, I would say, taking the model that we've developed with the press and applying it to policymakers. So we've already done this in one sphere. We know how to do it. And it's simply kind of taking what we've been done in a way very successful one sphere and applying it in another.
0: Hello.
1: Yeah, I have a question. <clears throat> in your
0: time in D.C., have you seen any indication from either side of the aisle on the legislative branch to decrease the size and the scope of the administrative state, or...?
2: You know, you occasionally do for, you know, certainly in the financial services world where I really work, you know, there have been a string of Republicans, for instance, have pushed more uh, cost-benefit analysis. So this may surprise you. None of the financial regulators are required to do cost-benefit analysis, you know, whereas uh, we can all you know, I think we could all probably agree that, for instance, EPA is not where we'd like them to be on policy. But EPA has a they do they have to do a lot of cost benefit analysis. It allows us to go in, look at the cost-benefit analysis, allows OMB to go in. Uh, and so more cost benefit analysis. I certainly, and I and I say this as somebody who ran an agency, uh, I do think Congress should directly take on what is called chevron deference, where the courts generally look at agencies and say, you know, is this a reasonable interpretation? And in fact, one of the things that my friend Russ Russ Vogt, who was the last OMB director uh, under President Trump was pushing, was forcing agencies to not use a reasonable interpretation, but to use the best interpretation of what the law actually said. And some of this is gonna have to be fought out in the courts, um, but I do think Congress has a role here. And Congress could very much say, listen, you have to actually do what the law says, not some complicated, you know, a uh, twist this. And I really saw this, and honestly, it was just so disheartening. Agency after agency I've ever dealt with, including the agency I ran, there, there really was a sense of the lawyers of, well, what answer would you like? You know, what, what do you want to do? Determine the policy and we'll determine the law afterwards. And I think we really need to change that. And again, the courts have to be at the forefront of that, but Congress can't be. Unfortunately, I've seen very little, um, you know, I guess I would say one of the great disappointments, and I put it this way, uh, nothing um, from having spent two years at a White House and two and a half years running the agency has made me any less skeptical of, the exec, of executive power. <laughs> I, you know, I'm fundamentally an article one guy. Congress needs to reassert its role. Um, I think we should be able to, to do things that limit the power of the executive branch. And it's disappointing that I felt like there was a window of time During the Trump administration, where some on the left were open to constraints uh, on the presidency, but now I suspect that's kind of gone away a little bit. Um, Just
1: a
0: question. So, what role should the government play in healthcare?
2: So, uh, you know, and I would start with the characterization of if you're going to, I mean, of course, you could set rules of the road, you can set, uh, you know, uh, things about fraud. If we're, you know, I guess I often ask the question this way. If the good in question is easily purchased by rich people, then you know it's not a market failure. You know it's an issue of either poverty or high risk. So maybe I'll rephrase your question and say, um, if we as a society are concerned about the healthcare outcomes of people who could not afford healthcare on their own, then what's the best way to deal with that? Is it a fair way of getting it? part of the question? Um, And what I think we ultimately should do is how do you separate a high risk pool that we explicitly subsidize and say, you know, here we're going to provide health care and then let's leave the rest of the market alone. And I've seen this, uh, you know, obviously the world I worked in in the mortgage space, whether it's mortgage insurance, disaster insurance, flood insurance, health care insurance, part of the problem is that government wants to come in and create subsidies without saying that they're creating subsidies by forcing everybody into a pool and cross-subsidizing and then just messing up so much of the rest of the market. So I think there's absolutely a way where we can create a high-risk pool and then leave the rest of the healthcare market to be a predominantly cash market. I believe you would have people come in and provide catastrophic insurance. All that said, to go back to my earlier point about having a plan, I think you'd be highly unlikely to to really get something like that done in a short amount of time. Um, But you really think about it, HSAs are a step in that direction. We've made a smaller segment of the market more cash-based. And so I think some of this is thinking through, if you can't get your optimal policy in 10 months, can you set up a road that gets you there in 10 years by creating the right incentives in the system? Um, But again, I think we can directly do that Uh, And to me, I think the evidence is pretty clear that the vast majority of health care for middle class, wealthier people would function completely without some sort of government subsidy. Uh,
1: Thank you, Mark. I think we have to wrap it up now. Is that right, Mackenzie? Yes, okay. Uh, Please uh, join me in thanking uh, Mark.
2: Thank you so much.